Well, today's sermon is going to mostly focus on our ministry to one another. So what I would like fresh in your mind is for you to take a moment right now and to look around the room. Really, turn around. I want you to get a fresh glimpse of the faces in this room. This is one of your primary fields of ministry. Right here, amen? amen. I see Keith moving around there. There's this, there's this old tradition in the church where they would pass the peace, right? At some point in the service, everybody would go around and they would literally shake hands. And I kind of like that, and it's a little bit what we were trying to do there. But let's uh, look at the passage before us, Romans 14, 8 through 9. If you turn there with me, Romans 14, 8 through 9. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Let's pray. Our merciful and gracious Father in heaven, we come to you today in the name of Jesus Christ, asking you to bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your most holy word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's take a few minutes uh, to set the context that we are in, the context in which we are going to hear this passage. We'll get to the context of the passage a little later, but right now I want to set the stage for where we are. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn over to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, I'm going to read 6, 7, and 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once in a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. I know it has probably always been the case, but of late... Does it feel like the ground under our feet is violently and continuously shaking? Amen? Does it feel like our culture is in the process of trying to rip itself apart? You know, we see, we see what is happening, and we're informed by the Word of God every week. The passage on the, begin, on the front of the order of worship 
tells us about this, right? It tells us that, that we are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. You know this passage on the front? To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape. We turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So do you, do you see where we are? The Lord has come. The desire of all nations has come. And in the process of his work here, he is about the business of defeating his enemies. 1 Corinthians 15. He is sitting in heaven laughing as the kings of the earth rage and set themselves in a gray against the Lord and his Christ. We can clearly see the death spiral from Romans chapter 1. As they profess themselves to be wise, the Lord exposes their foolishness for all to see. There are many, many things in our culture that are being shaken. It is, uh, it, it is interesting that those who think that they are throwing off the Lord's authority are actually having their foolishness put on public display by the Lord. And one of the truths that they are trying to throw off is identity. They know the importance of one's identity. They understand that being rooted in one's identity is extremely stabilizing. It keeps one grounded. And it is very comforting to know one's true identity. Now the big issue that they face is that they are not thankful for their identity, as we are told in Romans chapter 1. They've received this identity from their creator. They know he is there, and they are not thankful. They want to throw off any and all restraints placed on them by someone else, especially the one who created them, who is sovereign over them, and that they know one day will judge them. And they like, they like toddlers 
have stuck their fingers in their ears and they run furiously around in these tight little circles and they're yelling at the top of their lungs trying to drown out the steady drumming of the truth written on their heart. The faster they run and the louder they yell and the harder they jam their fingers into their ears, the less comfort they feel and the more foolish they look. But the passage in Romans tells us that we are the Lord's. We, as the church, those who belong to the Lord, we are called to be different. And we need to be reminded of this from time to time, maybe even continually, that we are citizens of Zion. And we are to live in a different culture. We are to live in a different way. We have a different identity. We are separate. We are different. We are set apart. We have a different future. You see, our identity is rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his. And Jesus is Lord. It says so right there in Romans 14. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. And what our culture hates is that they are not. We are the Lord's. In life and in death, in living and dying, regardless of what happens to us between those two points, living and dying, we are his. And we need to understand who he is so that we can get a grasp on who we are. You see, in the passage in Romans, it tells us that Jesus came, right? He came in the flesh, and he lived a perfect life, and he, he died for you and I's sins. And he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He paid for our sins and gave us his righteousness. He is Lord. He is the sovereign over us. But it's really even more, more than that. In, in Colossians chapter 1, we read this. For by him were all things created that, in heaven, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This is what a a sovereign Lord looks like. 
He created, He controls, He sustains all things. This is sort of a, a, three, four, a threefold lordship of Christ, right? So Jesus graciously creates us. Jesus mercifully redeems us. Or we could say he resurrects us. He takes us from death to life. Or we could even say that he recreates us. He purchases us out of slavery. And we are his. And then the third one is that Jesus, as the sovereign Lord, rules over us. Oh, how the natural man hates this. The flesh will war against the idea of a sovereign king. Our sinful flesh wants to set ourselves up as king and lawgiver and judge. But when we get a hold of the idea, when we embrace the idea that Jesus is our sovereign Lord, it changes everything. The implications are massive. They're far-reaching. They go in every single direction. Jesus is Lord changes how we view God. It changes how we view the cosmos and the creation. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view each other. It changes how we view our circumstances. This passage in Romans 14 that tells us that we are His is set in the middle of a chapter that talks about how the people of God are at each other. They are, they are fighting with each other over whether we should eat salad or steak, over which holidays we should celebrate. But later in the passage, it tells us this. That therefore, let us who belong to God pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. And then in verse 20, it tells us this, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Jesus created us, and he recreates us, and he's doing a work in us. He's sanctifying us. And this passage tells us that we are to make peace with those people that he's working with, that we are to build one another up. And that we are not to destroy each other, this work of God, for the sake of what we are eating. You see, this passage in Romans tells us that we are the Lord's. I'm going to hammer that concept, that we are the Lord's. If this is true, and it is, 
then our identity is derived from him. So we understand our identity by understanding his, who he is, what he has done. Just a few weeks ago, Mrs. Evans and I, I had the privilege uh, to go to Nashville and to attend uh, Handel's Messiah, which was performed by the Nashville Symphony and the Nashville Choir. And let me tell you, it was, it was glorious. Uh, can I get an amen from those who were there? But it really struck me that um, as, as Handel went to tell the story of the coming Messiah, that the very first words that you hear in his retelling of this story are from Isaiah 40. He starts the story of Jesus with this. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. And cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received double for all her sins. And this is really amazing. I mean, it's, it's a parallel to us, right? But Jerusalem at this time, they're guilty. They have sinned against their covenant God over and over again. And God comes to them with the promise he comes to comfort them. He sends his prophet to comfort the people and tell them that their warfare is over. That they no longer have to fight. Their losing war against the war of the flesh and the devil is over. Their sins have been pardoned. You see, we understand this, don't we? That Jesus came and he paid the wages for our sin. He took that death that was due us upon himself. And in return, he imputes his righteousness to us. This is the comfort that we live in. We are at peace with God. We are no longer at war with our Creator. Comfort is not something that we really talk about that much, about the comfort of the gospel. It's really interesting, too, because there are, there are two primary words that the New Testament, New Testament translates as comfort. And it's translated different ways as aid, help, comfort, encouragement, exhortation. But they show up 140 times in the New Testament. You would think this would be an important concept to us, 140 times. When you see these 
words in the Scripture, and even the Scripture themselves, comfort us and exhort us and encourage us and admonish us. Thank you. To what end? So that we may be strengthened and established in our faith. Strengthened and established. So let's look at a couple of representative passages of how comfort is used in the scriptures in the New Testament. And uh, maybe we'll gain some insight. If you would, turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. And I'll read 13 through 17. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, beloved of the Lord, my brethren, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation. That's our word for comfort. He has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and to establish you in every good word and work. This love of God comes to us. We are given the ability to hear the gospel, to respond to the gospel, and to be changed into the image of of Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Somebody should say hallelujah. <laughs> and now I want to take you over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 2 and Pastor Bradshaw started with this right before the service. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. As blessed this morning, we sang Psalm 136. I've seen Hesed all throughout the liturgy today, and this is really the, the New Testament equivalent of Hesed, right? The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's who we're here to worship today, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulations, 
that we may be able to what? To comfort them which are in any trouble. We have been comforted in our tribulations so that we may comfort others with that same comfort. Absolutely astonishing that we are actually called to take on that ministry of that gospel comfort of communicating it to those around us who are in any trouble. And it really doesn't matter if it's a sinner out on the street that you meet somebody who's unregenerate or if it's a dear friend here in the church, you have the same responsibility that you are to communicate and minister comfort to that individual through the truth of the gospel. Amen? And all of this reminds me, and those men who were in the book study with me know where I'm going now, this all reminds me of the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. It is summed up so well. Question number one says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Right? There's your Romans passage, in living and dying, we are the Lord's. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And the second question says, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Who wants to live in the joy of that comfort? I do. The answer is very simple. It's three things. First, you must know how great your sin and misery are. Two, how you have been set free from all your sins and misery. They've been taken as far as the east is from the west. God remembers them no more. And what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? That you are to thank God for such a deliverance. You see, Jesus is Lord. He is the faithful Savior. And these two questions and answers sum it up beautifully. He is faithful. Look at the work of the Lord here. He is faithful. He has paid our sins with his blood. He sets us free. He watches over us. He watches over us. He works all, thing, all things for our good. 
He assures us of eternal life. He makes us willing and ready to live for him. And you have the comfort of knowing that you belong to him. You can rest in that. You live and die in the joy of this comfort. It's really simple. You must know how great your sins are. And you must know that it is only Jesus that has set you free from your sins and misery. And you live a life of thankfulness and worship and praise to the Lord for such a deliverance. You know, this reminds me of, um, of, of John Newton. It says when he was near the end of his life, um, he, w- he was quoted as saying this. He could, he could barely speak at the time. But he said, my memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And I'm sure that our brother Newton would affirm that we are to thank the Lord for such a deliverance. But you see, we have a, we have a responsibility and a duty as those who belong to the Lord. Those of us who have received comfort from God are called to comfort others. Do you see this? And I don't, I don't remind you of these things because I think that you're not doing them. I remind you because it is easy to let Satan get a foothold, to slip into just a little selfishness. And we all struggle with pride and selfishness. And when we do this, we begin to wage war with those we are called to love, those who have been redeemed, those who are like us. They have the same condition that we do. We then attempt, no matter how subtle it may be, to destroy God's workmanship. We provoke them to wrath. This is the context of Paul reminding us that we are the Lord's and to not destroy one another over something as insignificant as food. But we are to look to the glory and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our duty is to comfort and to strengthen and to encourage and to build up, not to provoke to wrath. And this has real-world implications, right? So regardless of what's going on in our culture, if you're stressed out about it or if somebody else is stressed out about it, we comfort one another with what the Scriptures say, with what the Lord is actually doing, right? He is shaking down all those kingdoms that stand against Him. He is... He is in the process of defeating all of his enemies. We need to get a hold of this truth. We are not defeated. We live in the victory that Christ has already secured for us. 
If you are dealing with strained or broken relationships, you just go back to the second answer in that Heidelberg Catechism, right? You take a moment, you take a breath, and you remind yourself first, I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. And I am thankful to the Lord for such a deliverance. And my responsibility now in this strained or broken relationship is to inject comfort into it. Maybe there's some other impossible situation that you're dealing with. Take a moment. Remind yourself. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. And I am thankful to the Lord for such deliverance. In life and in death, in any tribulation or trouble, the Lord's comfort is there for us. I've, I've counseled with people in the past who were in despair or who were in depression. And some of them were in pretty deep and in a dark place. And it's really not just a matter of telling them to get over it. Because they, they knew where they were and they really wanted to get over it. So it wasn't just that easy. But I can tell you that when you get a hold of this idea that you are a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior and that you are to respond in thanksgiving, you begin to see the light again. You begin to emerge from that dark place. But again, I want to warn us that our flesh wars against these truths. Our old man that we're still dragging around day by day. Satan, whispering in your ear, is going to try to tell you that you should focus on the other person's sin. Your pride will raise up and say, I can't believe they did this to me. Or when we get frustrated with our own sins, I can't believe I did this to me again. Or those times when we're not thankful to the Lord for his goodness. And you say ever so quietly, I can't believe he is letting this happen to me. Take a moment, step back, remember the comfort. You are a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. And we rejoice. So as you've gathered by now, the point here is that we are the Lord's, right? And we have a responsibility so what, what about this comfort? What does it look like to walk faithfully in light of this knowledge? Well, it really comes down to the Lord's sovereignty, right? Do, do we trust him? 
Do we truly believe that he must work all things together for my salvation? Is he really working all things for my good? Have you ever been in that place where it's, it's bad, it's so bad that you can't even pray? You know you should. You want to, but there are literally no words available. You get on your hands and knees. You point your eyes towards heaven, and nothing comes but tears. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been there? I want you to get an idea of what this comfort looks like. When you're in that place where you're so beaten down that you can't even pray, we, we roll the idea that God works all things together for our good, right? It's easy to say, and we're quick to, we're quick to play that verse. But I think sometimes what we miss is in that same passage it says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be heard. And he that searches the heart and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God, God's comfort is so all-encompassing that in that moment when you can't even pray, the Spirit comes alongside and prays on your behalf according to the will of the Father. And we know that if the prayer is according to the will of the Father, He will do it. Amen? And then it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did know, foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, that me also glorified. Do you see this? God is truly working all things for our salvation, for our good. It says that we are being conformed into the image of His Son. It says that before time began, right? God called us. And he enabled us to respond to the call. And he justified us by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that he glorified us. That's amazing. It's in the past tense. 
So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, including that comfort? Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is it who condemns us? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who is making intercession for us. Do you see this? We have the Spirit making intercession for us. We have Jesus himself making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. And living and dying, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, but in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The image of conquering slaughtered sheep there takes a minute to get your head wrapped around, doesn't it? But that is the vision we see of the Lamb of God. And we follow him. We belong to him. And Paul tells us that he is persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is our message. This is our personal comfort. But we as a group possess this promise. And we are to remind each other constantly. I mean, what, is, what does that look like? What does it look like for us as a body to walk this out in our daily lives as we identify as the Lord's people, as we are comforted by the Lord day in and day out, as we are sanctified and grow in grace, as we are conformed more and more into the image of his son, it will become evident as we serve one another, as we comfort one another, as we minister to one another, as Jesus ministers to us. You know, I have this, I have this picture in my head. Several years ago when Providence was still a young church, we were assigned uh, an interim pastor. His name was Robert LeMay, and he'd been a pastor for 40-some years. He was amazing. But when he did the benediction... He did this thing with his hands. And this is really what we're talking about. As he did the benediction, he would receive the blessing from the Lord, right? He would receive that comfort from the Lord. But as he was talking, he would then turn and direct that blessing to the congregation. And this is that movement that we need to learn. That as the Lord fills us with his comfort that we then let it spill out on those around us, those who are in any distress or any tribulation or any trouble.
Amen? Can we do that? I mean, this is, this is what it looks like, right? There's, I'm just going to read through a few verses, but this is what Jesus' ministry looks like to us. So this is what it should look like to one another, right? In Matthew 20, we read, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You have been called to minister to others and to give your life. In John 13, we read this. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love one to another. John 15 says, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for a friend. This is the call. This is the call to community. This is what it means for us as a group to be the Lord's. Ephesians 4 tells us this, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We minister to one another. We love one another. We lay down our lives for one another. We forgive one another. We put on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. We are called to forgive one another, to love one another, to lay down our lives for one another, to minister one to another. For he has not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And whether we wake or sleep, in living and in dying, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, build one another up, and love one another as Jesus loved you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Holy Father, we are thankful today for the word, the life-bringing word that you have given to us, that you have preserved for us, and that through the ministry of your spirit, you can allow us to understand it and be comforted by it. Lord, we pray that as we grow in grace, as you continue the work that you began in us, as we are sanctified more and more, that we can take the comfort that has been given to us and we can extend it to those around us. Let us be your hands and feet. Let us minister to one another and to a dying world around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.